Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true what crime is review. This? <laughs> that is our fan. <laughs> Jeff Bromley's version of our theme song that he made, Kevin Flynn. Is in it an incredible? Italian restaurant? Turn it back up. Let's just listen to it. That's a mandolin. It's a mandolin. Jeff Brumley, by the way, plays all of the instruments in the, his version of our theme song. Let's let it play out. All right. Uh, of course, uh, bass wow. is Jeff's main instrument. So, can I read the rest of the introduction now? I guess. I mean, I don't. Should we'll we even continue with the show? We'll finish talking about the theme in a second. Okay, so, right. Crime Writers on is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a Canadian woman finds herself fighting the police after they bungle her sexual assault case. We'll talk about Carrie Low versus from the CBC. Plus, Korean police are baffled by a serial killer preying on Seoul. We'll discuss the Netflix documentary, The Raincoat Killer. Well, it's really dry when the music runs out. I huh? know. Yeah. Join me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And Dead on Deadline is still holding strong at number one in Exeter. So it's very exciting. Congratulations, Laura. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So, Kevin, that theme song, reimagined by our listener, one of our favorite listeners, Jeff Brumley. He did that on his own. Yes. Inspired as a creative project. Pretty incredible, right? Yeah. I'm waiting for someone to do like a acapella bebop, doo-wop version. Really? Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> as long as one of the kids' Dude. chorus doing it. Nothing yeah, worse than be... children singing. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Christmas. <laughs> I don't know. I think Toby has potential as an acapella singer. Really? I, Toby- I, I don't know. I just look at Toby and I think that might be his hidden talent. Did you, in fact, sing bass in a college acapella choir? Yes or no? 
Uh, that's a negative. All right. Uh, well, Toby, you're dashing my dreams. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's surprising. <laughs> well, Kevin, before we start our first review, we have to do something we haven't done in a very long time on this show. Oh, yes, that's right. We have one of these. Do you want to go ahead and read that? All right. Ready? Mm-hmm. True, True crime, crime update. So a couple of months ago, some bones were found near Loon Mountain on in New Hampshire, uh, some, you know, remains of bones or bones. It isn't exactly clear. And there was a lot of speculation that those bones slash remains might be related to the Maura Murray case, which is, of course, a case that has become a a well-known case because of the Missing Maura Murray podcast and the many other pieces of coverage of Maura Murray that have happened as a result of the Missing Maura Murray podcast. That case is obviously very big in the media. It was announced this week in the New Hampshire media from the New Hampshire State Police that those remains those bones are not in any way connected to Maura Murray and that there is a more than 60% chance that those bones are from like between the 1700s and 1800s. Yeah. So clearly not connected. And I will say, Kevin, when that announcement was first made that those remains were discovered, you originally turned to me and you said colonial American or Native American bones. <laughs> That's originally what you turned to me yeah. and said. I mean, yeah. it wasn't, I mean, just when they have the state archaeologists come in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't mean like there is a skeleton with sinew and flesh and whatever. Right. I, I mean. Well, that was a visual, Kevin. Yeah, well. <laughs> you know, clothes would still be yeah. probably there. You know, it just it just seemed 2007, like. 2007. Yeah. I mean, it's very possible, I suppose, that, you know, if they were uncertain that they would bring in the state archaeologists. But yeah, it just kind of my gut said, yeah, the woods like that. And it was also because, remember, it was found during some construction. Yep. So they probably uncovered it. But the true crime industrial complex immediately went into, yes. oh, well, this is Maura Murray. Look, it's not unlikely that you could have gotten 30 miles away on foot. Uh, well, I don't think because, it is. People think it is, but I don't think it would be that unlikely. Well, yeah. She was spotted several miles away, you know, running by some somebody else. Cross country runner, champion, champion, right? So she can move around. I mean, I'm just—I have always been of the theory that she was not abducted by a random serial killer who, or a killer who struck once and then never killed the guy. Whatever, it's tragic, but I don't think it's as nefarious as that. We could all be proven wrong in the future, but no, my first guess was not. Oh, this solves the Maura Murray case. Obviously, it's very sad for the family that they have not had any resolution to this. Obviously, yeah, because that's it. Yeah, but Laura. I was very sad when the news first broke about the discovery of these bones and immediately the whole world of like true crime fanery immediately went to, oh, Maura Murray, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Mm -hmm. this poor family, like there's no such thing as any news breaking in New Hampshire without this being like the center of their lives again. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, and I feel like within the last few years, since the true crime podcast universe expanded in the way that it did, there has been even more focus on the Maura Murray case. I mean, we've had podcasts and documentaries and, you know, Reddit threads and I mean, on and on. So it's like everybody so desperately wants some closure, you know, some answer as to what happened to her. 
But when I heard this and when Kevin kind of made that, you know, oh, it's probably a colonial American or whatever, I mean, that's a very New Hampshire sort of story in a way. You know, I remember years ago, Newfields, the town next to us, there was a little boy out digging in a gravel pile. The family had had some gravel brought in and he like pulled out a skull and he's like, oh, dinosaur bone. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's a murder victim. Oh my gosh, it's this, it's that. And same thing after, you know, they went out and analyzed the bones it was actually the place that they were excavating for this fill, for this gravel, was like the old county poor farm. So they just had like mass burials. But, you know, in this case, I mean, I was hoping, I was like, oh, please, like, finally, could we finally have an ending to this Maura Murray story? Yeah. And this on the heels of when they went in and dug in that house pretty recently. Yep. You know, so it's like more sort of grasping at any sort of lead that comes up with the hope that this might be something that finally ends this. Right. Well, they dug in that house. Make no mistake, I believe, because the New Hampshire Attorney General's office is being inundated with phone calls and letters and like right to know requests from citizens about something they know like evidence that they know to not be true or likely to not be true. And they had to end it. They had to end it. So they finally went and did this, though they knew they'd probably find nothing to show that they would find nothing to end it so they could focus on things that they are trying to solve that they actually probably can solve. You know what I mean? Like that's what makes me so sad about this is that at some point, maybe someday we'll find out what happened to Maura Murray. Maybe. Maybe a hiker will find some remains. Maybe something will happen. Maybe. It's not going to be because we dig in somebody's basement. Like 99.9% it's not. And the resources that are being spent on this, all I can think about are the cases that are not being covered, not being solved, the resources that are being spent on things that are solvable. Like I I just, it, it makes me like really sad. I'm sad for the family and I'm sad for all of the families whose cases are not being looked at as a result of this, if that makes sense. Toby, does that make sense to you? Like, I mean, it just, it's a very complicated True crime industrial complex plus tragedy plus like law of averages kind of situation here. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's got such a large following, I guess. But, you know, when they found that skeleton, it just seemed so unlikely that it was her. I mean, why would it be? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, it just seems like it would be just a huge coincidence. So, yeah, but I can see, you know, people, a lot of people are really invested in this case because of the podcast and I guess the TV show as well. So I, you know, there is outside pressure and that's outsized pressure. And I think that, you know, there's probably a fair amount of those cases around the country. Yeah. I'm not saying there should be no resources, Mm -hmm. but they should not be getting 10,000 tips that make no sense in addition to the things that they should be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that being said, (laughs) obviously we feel tremendously for the family that, you know, it's got to be a roller coaster for them. So we will put this to bed for now. And I'm I'm sure the next time there's some lead, we will talk about it again because it's happening right here in our state. And we're very close to this Maura Murray news. All right. Let's move on to our first review, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Leading off. For a long time, I couldn't get the scene out of my head. The scenes where the victims were dismembered, how they might have suffered. It was difficult for me. It still is. In 2003, a triple murder in a wealthy Seoul neighborhood challenged Korean police. The unknown killer used a blunt force object and investigators saw a connection to a series of slayings of wealthy elderly people in a different neighborhood. We were under a lot of pressure because we hadn't apprehended the killer. All those murders happened on our watch and all of them remained unsolved. 
And yet, another terrible case was waiting for us. But the M.O. for this serial killer changed as he shifted to killing sex workers whose disappearances would go largely unnoticed. Later, the world would watch in horror as the graves of his many victims were unearthed. And then I shoveled again. And right then and there, I found a bone about as long as my arm. In the three-part documentary, The Raincoat Killer, Chasing a Predator in Korea, police profilers and crime techs recall the hunt for Yu Young Chul, whose crimes shocked a nation that believed serial killers were limited to the West. Using new interviews and archival footage, the series provides a straightforward recap of the famous investigation. We are going to be talking about plot points from The Raincoat Killer, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. So, Lara Bricker, your first note to me is interesting because your first note is about the Korean justice system. Why is that your first note about this documentary? Um, because I am who I am. And, and I <laughs> right, <laughs> right away, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Um, so it's OK to just like slap people around while you're interrogating them in Korea. But if it's a false confession after you slap someone around, well, we're going to challenge that. I'm like, what is going on here? It just felt very different watching it, trying to sort of acclimate to how they were processing cases. But then, you know, they also set this up going in that this is a time in Seoul that the economy is not so great. There's like homelessness and there's like inequality in the system. And then you have these police who are thrust into this horrific, gigantic serial killer case that don't really feel like they're totally prepared. I mean, they have that one guy who was like the first ever criminal profiler. I, I, I just Korean think, you know, criminal profiler. Korean yes. criminal. That's what I mean. Yes. Um, the fact that this justice system just, there were some things that just didn't gel. Like, you know, I'm like, this doesn't seem compatible, but I guess we're going to see where this happens. And I think that that sort of set up following this investigation that really was all over the place. Yeah. I mean, Toby, shoddy policing, right, in this case? Yeah, and I think one of the guys, one of the police guys says that things were a lot different back in 2000 and we didn't have things figured out, but their like, investigative techniques are like, let's just talk to people on the street or let's look <laughs> out the back window of our car. Um, Sounds like KC from American Vigilante. <laughs> let's go to yeah, the discotheque. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but KC would have caught the guy right away, Kevin, and kicked <laughs> the shit out of him and stomped on his head and been yeah. like, fuck you, raincoat killer. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm going to eat a big steak. Waterboarded him with Dr. Pepper or something. And then raincoat killer never committed another crime again, and he's living a very productive life. Now. <laughs> yeah, and he thanks me. He thanks me every Christmas. He invited me to his wedding. <laughs> so then, of course, it, it all ends up with the big moment where they catch him and they're interrogating him and it's one of those i thought you were watching him oh no i thought you were watching him and he just walks out and they lose him and it's i mean it's you know it's shades of ted bundy yeah but it's just it's a little ludicrous no and then the other cop the apparently like competent cop signs off on oh yeah we let him go on purpose knowing that that's like not a cool fucking thing to do and tells us that like as an audience, well, I did that knowing that I might get in trouble later if we didn't catch him. What the hell? Like, you don't say that on camera? 
<laughs> hey, all's well that ends well. Yeah, all's well that ends well. Well, there was that one thing where I guess one of, I'm trying to, I don't know if it was prosecutor or a cop or whatever, but somebody from up above, it might have been the guy with the crazy purple glasses, which we totally no, got to fucking talk about. He's a cop, right? Yeah, he's a cop. Yeah, he was the chief of the he, mobile he division. He was like Korean Don Johnson. <laughs> they wanted to label, when he came in and then he was arrested and then escaped, they wanted to put him in the system that he had been a burglary suspect or something like that. Yeah. Not a murder suspect. Yeah. Because it a murderer cool. walking away would be like be really bad, but a robbery suspect, <laughs> well, oh, it's, it's okay. okay. No problem. Yeah. Like, and then one of the guys was like, I wasn't going to sign off on that. Yeah. So this is 2021, right? You're making a documentary yeah. about a case that you did a while ago. You decide to show up and you're like, I'm going to wear my purple sunglasses for every interview. <laughs> The wardrobe on a lot of these folks is is really something. How about the medical examiner who had the the little fedora and the purple shirt with the suspenders? It's like he was like at the Teletubbies Oktoberfest party. <laughs> He's got purple lederhosen. Yes. I will say, um, Toby and Laura, did you guys watch this dubbed in English or did you watch it with subtitles? Subtitles. Subtitles. Okay, so Kevin and I watched it dubbed in English. Only because I had a, I was not feeling well this week and I was very tired and I was afraid I was going to fall asleep and not and not catch some of it. So we watched it in subtitles. And I will say I do have a problem with the tenor of the dubbing of this between the men and the one woman in this. Yeah. The men were- You talk about the woman and I'll talk about the guy with okay. the purple glasses. The men were very straight. The woman was dubbed over with the most unnecessarily sexy voice. It was like old school 1990s Iron Chef. The Can you woman... give me an impersonation? No, I'm just going to drop a clip right here. We were wondering what was wrong with us since we had all felt that ominous air. That is how horrifying and terrifying the crime scene was. I kind of regret watching it with subtitles now, Rebecca. Yeah, well, yeah. okay. And and very often when the voice actors do the dubbing, they do keep it pretty conventional and straightforward. But... The guy who decided that he got the assignment to do the guy in the purple glasses, his name is Kang Daewon. He was the chief of the mobile police unit. I don't know how that's different. I don't know. Does that mean they're always in cars? I guess so. Whatever. They're on their phones. This guy, he really embraced, I think, the spirit of the character when he did the reading. I was extremely anxious. At the time, I usually smoked a pack of cigarettes a day on average. But that night, I went through an entire carton. <laughs> just just his look and everything. Like You look at him, you're like, he must have been the worst guy to work for. Yeah. He just must have been all drama. <laughs> it was no good. It was no good. So this documentary was like, I mean, it was weird. Because like, yeah. I read the Wikipedia of the case after I saw the documentary because I was like, I'm not sure what's really going on here. The documentary is basically a Wikipedia of this case, right? No, I think Wikipedia had additional information that I thought was way more interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was just horrible. Yeah. I'm just, uh. yeah. But, Laura, I will say the serial killer we always hear in movies, and let's talk about the case for a second, in movies and TV shows about serial killers, you do hear about a pattern of escalation. And yeah. this particular serial killer, talk about escalation, there's like a killing every couple of months or whatever, and then there's one a month, and then all of a sudden, it's just like, what, one a week? Yeah, he's killing a sex worker a week. It's a lot. I mean, there really it does seem to be like a serious pattern of escalation. Like, this was a really horrible series of crimes. I don't want to diminish it by talking about yeah. the weirdness of the documentary, but it really was. Right, Laura? 
Yeah, no, it really was. And I think, you know, we didn't really get a lot of like behind the scenes background about the serial killer. We never saw his face. Laura, was his face also blurred out when they did show some yes. of his face? No, they were, sh- they were blurred but, out there, his There's hands. a couple times when you saw him. Really? Yeah, from a distance. Yeah, no, I never saw his face. And, um, you know, we didn't get a lot about the serial killer himself. We didn't even see his face. And so that made it hard. We heard these like weird voiceover sort of like narration that was supposed to be him at some point that I wasn't sure if it was from the interrogation or his journals or make-believe. But in episode three, I felt like that was the only episode for me where I actually felt like the narrative structure was such that it was like actually kind of drawing you along as the story progressed. And I think it was because I really sensed with the escalation of the crimes, almost like this addictive nature of killing that like as I was listening to the way that the killings were getting faster and more frequent and how he had to have them and he had this like need inside of him I could there was like a real parallel in my mind as I was watching this to somebody that's like addicted to drugs or starts doing heroin or starts doing something and then they do it a little bit and then they just are doing it like all the time because they can't contain themselves so I felt like that really came through but why didn't we never see what this guy looked like yeah yeah I don't disagree. (laughs) Yeah, it is an interesting case in the sense that the serial killer, his target, he makes this really weird pivot because they often say with a serial killer that there is a psychosexual component to it. So the second half where he's targeting sex workers, that kind of makes sense. It kind of, you know, uh, is on point for that. But to first of all, start off with targeting elderly, wealthy people in a wealthy neighborhood, it sounds more like a personal cause murderer. And then to all of a sudden say, oh, well, now I want to do this. The the theory from investigators, which I got from Wikipedia, was that after that he had broken up with a girlfriend and he moved to targeting prostitutes because he was trying to get revenge on women, right? But it just seems for a serial killer, the psychosexual motive is almost always there. It's a really weird pivot. If they hadn't matched up the blunt force weapon, it would be like, are we not dealing with two different serial killers? Because which we didn't get in the documentary, there was another active serial killer in Seoul at the same time. Right. Oh. Which is why some of those crimes were not attributed to him. Right, which they didn't get into, you know. So, Toby, there's one thing that was really interesting to me here. A total missed opportunity that there was like a glancing blow of that they then just completely walked away from. There was this tiny little bit of the documentary where they talked about like the economic factors and like sort of how the class system in Korea sort of like creates tension. And when the rich people were killed, they were sort of looking at that angle. And it made me think about like all the cultural influences and all the things that we've seen in the last few years coming out of Korea, like like Squid Game Game. and uh, Parasite. And like this is a really, really important part of the culture in Korea. And this is like foundational and it's really interesting and it's like stuff we that I think like this is probably the story that this documentary could have told parallel to this story and that's the most interesting stuff for me here is the stuff about Seoul the stuff about the neighborhood the stuff about what's going on in the economy the stuff that's going on in culture and there's just none of it and I'm not saying like they didn't necessarily design this for American audiences so it didn't necessarily have to be like a lesson about Korea But there's also just like no context, I think, even for any audience about kind of what's going on in the period of time. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's contextless. It's just the stuff that happens. Yeah. And yeah, I thought the, the one thing that I thought was really interesting that they also kind of dropped, which I thought would have been a better documentary, is that woman who becomes the police chief in that one district, I guess, and starts to treat sex workers as victims rather mm. than as... And I thought there was going to be more to that, <laughs> quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of ends and it goes away. And that to me seemed like kind of an interesting story. And they had some interesting tape of her sort of comforting uh, people. But yeah, I mean, it, it it is it is like, I think you guys were saying it right, where it's, it's just kind of like a Wikipedia with moving images is that you're, you're kind of going through stuff, getting a bunch of you know, facts and and cops kind of talking about things, but you're not getting any kind of larger perspective or... Yeah. At the end, it's like, what does this all mean? Like, is is there any conclusion that you can draw from this? Or is it just... Because you don't learn anything about the guy. Like, at one point, they talk at the end about how he confessed to this one crime he didn't do because the cops said, we'll pay for your your son's college. And I was like, his son? Like, this guy's got a family? Like, where did that come from? He'd been married and had a kid, but you didn't know that. And again, that was kind of dropped. And like, you don't know, like, what's the guy? I, I don't know anything about him. Does he yeah. have a job? Like, what what does he do with his life? What would have led to this? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't know what did he do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lara, this is a very grisly crime. What do you think about all the mm-hmm. reenactments in this uh, documentary? Um, I'm just going to say no to the reenactments. (laughs) Just say no. Because you have like two totally polar opposite styles going on in this documentary. You have these police investigators who are still totally traumatized by the horror of this case doing these very raw, serious interviews talking about finding the bodies and, uh, you know, in the line and the, the little woman investigator who was talking about how she was crying and shaking as she was filming. And then you have these like over the top, crazy, I don't even know, like reenactments going on at the same time when they're talking about the serial killer and they're talking about the crimes. And I'm like, these, these two things don't go together. It, it just, it, just say no. Yeah. That, that's all I can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of you know, Korean sensibility in the storytelling. This was made for a Korean audience. It wasn't made for a Western audience. So I don't want to use the term, you know, lost in translation. But we have had, you know, stories, particularly, say, from Canada, where there's a very Canadian influence. We're going to talk about that. It's different than sort of an American style. I feel like that some of our displeasure with the documentary, some of it may lie with the way the Korean filmmakers wanted to make the film for a Korean audience, just as opposed to just it's sort of missing out on a lot of stuff. That's just sort of how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think we can also say that style-wise, cultural, you know, stuff or not, like, did the film do a service to the victims? Did the film do a service to the story? Did the film do a service to the... Uh, the investigators? investigators? I don't know. I think it, it did. It seemed like everybody they interviewed was kind of like, Wow, I couldn't believe this was happening. Yeah. <laughs> it was like deer in the headlights, like, wow, and then this happened. Yeah, yeah. Like nobody wow. nobody really exerted any like sense of I don't know, like He kept calling the same brothel to get a sex worker every week. Yes. And then she disappeared. If I ran a pizza place and my delivery guys <laughs> kept getting disappearing every week, I would be like we got to stop sending pizza to that neighborhood. Yeah, or we got to shut down for a week, maybe. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. I don't well, feel like that's probably a very stable 
I, I bet you people oh. kind of come and go from that. <laughs> yeah, like, you know. yeah. I mean, you're ob- well. That's that's why he targets them, right? Because they're at yeah. risk. And, right. And absolutely, a pizza delivery person would someone would follow up on that? A sex worker, no. probably not. Yeah. And that's you know that's why you know the, the victimology of that. Yeah. The other thing that was again sort of talking about how weird the whole law enforcement thing is. At the end, when that woman is saying that last year we solved a hundred percent of the murders in Seoul. Like, what are you talking? How can that possibly be true? Yeah, you solved a hundred in a major metro, you know, a huge city. You solved every single murder. And I think it goes back to earlier in the series where they're saying, like, well, we didn't want to call it a murder because once you call it a murder, then this. So Uh, people in other precincts didn't realize there were murders going on because we were calling it something else. Right. It's like, juking the stats. It's like saying you have a high closure rate because you arrested someone. Right. You didn't necessarily have to convict them. They didn't have to arrest the right person. But if you arrest someone, it's closed, right? Yeah. Knock them off the board. Yeah. Speaking of knocking off the board, how about the time the cop kicked that woman charging the mother with the umbrella? Dear She's coming Lord. at the at the suspect Jack on Ruby style. On camera. I don't yeah. think kicking her is the best way of handling it, but I can't think of what the better way is. I think maybe, your hands are, are holding the suspect. I think maybe just I don't know, not doing that. Not doing anything yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe well that's well, you had that. it, he said because they lost him the first time, so they had hundred and twenty cops with him that time yeah. so that he wouldn't get away it's you know 120 seems like a lot what about the 118 who weren't holding on to him exactly one of them yeah, could have, one of them could have not kicking her maybe yeah. would have been a better look you know the one part that was good about this documentary i think was the human element of the investigators like as you're talking numbers it was coming into my mind that woman detective who was like trying to get the fingerprints to identify the victims yes you mean the uh, csi uh that was kim he sook yes Yes. So like there's parts of this I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. But then that part was so poignant where she was like, I and I just kept doing it over and over. And I was speaking in tongues and I was speaking to the bodies and she was going and I was like, oh, my goodness, like that part was so powerful. And if they had stuck with that instead of going back to the stupid reenactments and maybe <laughs> the had like the something of glasses, it. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, the purple glasses guy, I might like to have a cocktail with him. <laughs> You'd be buying, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> He'd be smoking. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out The Raincoat Killer, Chasing a Predator in Korea? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Should our listeners check out this documentary? No. Um, no. 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 And and it's too bad. This is this is a grisly, horrific, prolific, really traumatic serial killer case for everybody involved. But the way that this was told was like painful to watch. There was like no narrative structure in terms of something that made you compelled to follow along. I I just didn't really feel like I got the whole story. And, you know, there were parts of this that really didn't work well together in terms of the style that they used in the documentary. But I learned more about this case going and looking up articles online, which is unfortunate because they had all of the police investigators that were involved in this investigation. Um, So I I would just say no, um, not to diminish the horror of these crimes and these murders, but no. Is that a thumbs down? That is a thumbs down, Rebecca. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the raincoat killer? Uh, yeah, I'm a thumbs down. I mean, I, I just, you know, as we talked about earlier, if you didn't listen to the whole thing, um, there were some things that they could have like focused on a little bit more to make it interesting. But in the end, I mean, it just seems 
there, there's no context. You don't know what the point of it all is. You don't even know anything about the killer. It's just this sort of litany of crimes and I guess a little bit about what they did to try and catch him. But even that stuff doesn't have much suspense behind it. I, I mean, this is a kind of serial killer type show that I find, I, I think it's it's just kind of lurid and depressing. So that's a thumbs down. Kevin Flint. I'm also thumbs down. I I do like the idea of checking out true crime documentaries from other parts of the world. We've had some interesting things to kind of check out, not just about crimes that we haven't heard of, but also the storytelling styles and the different things that happen with those justice systems. We had a lot of Scandi noir stuff, and then we had UK and something from Spain and uh, now Korea and France. And I just don't think like this was told in a way that would resonate with Western audiences, maybe with Korean audiences, I, I suppose. Doing some extra textual research, you found out there was a lot more to the case that if it had been added might have made it a little better. You know, I just think also that perhaps American audiences know more things about the criminal techniques. They made it seem like that, you know, all of these uh, Korean crime techs would be like, you'd be so surprised what happens when you spray luminol. Like, no, we've seen this on television here for 30 years. Yeah. We know it's going to light up like a Christmas tree. So in any event, I just feel like uh, maybe, I don't want to say this is a missed opportunity, but it just... It just doesn't sink. So thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down for me, too. Um, I don't think it's lost in translation. I just think this sucked. I actually think Korean audiences would think it sucked, too. It's just not good. Um, not told well. It's Wikipedia. Not as good as the Wikipedia. I don't think someone watching it in Korea would think it was better than the Wikipedia article <laughs> about the case. And listen, I am not against watching a straight true crime documentary about a grisly serial killer case. That's where Toby and I split in our fandom of true crime. Like, I'm totally for a straight true crime thing if it's well made and responsible and interesting and I learned something. This was not that. Uh, I learned stuff, but it was not well made and it was not responsible and it wasn't good, and quite frankly, it was boring. So, uh, yeah, no, big thumbs down for me for The Raincoat Killer. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Kevin, here we are in the business section. Business section. Hey, can I make a plug in the business section? Why not? I never do that. All right. So I have a new day job at my day job. Okay. I am now in charge of the podcast unit at New Hampshire Public Radio. Mm-hmm. So can I make a quick plug for the two podcasts that I now am in charge of? No. Coming up on the Crime Writers on After Show. <laughs> now go ahead, sure. If you care about civics, please check out the really freaking fun podcast, Civics 101. And if you like anything about the outside, please check out the really great journalism podcast about the outdoors, Outside In. It's really fun. Outside In and Civics 101, check them out. Kevin, what do we have going on our Patreon right now? 
All right, well, we have the Crime Writers on After Show, and today we are going to talk with Mr. Jeff Brumley. He's One of the our guy, favorite listeners. He's the guy who uh, redid our theme music today. Next week, we'll go back to the original, but we wanted to talk to him a little bit about uh, how he did it and a little more about his musical background. Who knew that he... Uh, had a, uh, a musical theater influence in his professional life. It's incredible. It is. So uh, stay tuned for that. We also have uh, the latest Deep Dive Book Club podcast is out, but I think it's never too early to start preparing the homework for the next Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. Toby, what's the next book that everybody needs to read so they'll be prepared for the next podcast? The next book is My Sister the Serial Killer, Mm. by Oyinkan Braithwaite. And it's a, you know, highly acclaimed novel from Nigeria, I believe. And I think it's somewhat satirical. I don't know. I just started reading a little bit of it and I liked it. And I was like, oh, you know, I should just save this for the uh, the deep dive. So I did. Uh, I'm looking forward to jumping into it. We also have uh, some excellent guests. It's going to be a good discussion. And we are taping December 1st. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. And Laura, you're letting us know that there's actually a part two of your Leave it to Bricker episodes on the secret tunnels of quaint as fuck Exeter, New Hampshire. Yeah, quaint as fuck Exeter, New Hampshire is just getting more mysterious by the day. And so I I did an episode of Leave it to Bricker about the tunnels. I wrote a newspaper article about the tunnels. As I was going by the local corner variety, I got hailed into a car recently. What? By a nine-year-old wait a minute, wait, wait, man. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, you know you're not supposed to get into a car with somebody. With a stranger. With a stranger. The actual fuck, Lara. I mean, come on. This is why I wasn't good at canvassing when I was a political volunteer. They said, don't go in the houses. I said, why not? So I just was like, <laughs> I, 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 I went in the car. And if you want to know what happened in that car, you can tune in to the next Leave it to Brooklyn. Uh, wow, sounds porny. Yeah, it does. This is like the beginning of one of those movies on Showtime After Dark. And she was never seen again. Wow. Were there dentures involved? Was there the removal of dentures involved? Jeez. Uh, no. She's got a gum job. <laughs> oh, God, you guys. No, 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 no. I got some information. Oh, I bet right. you did. All right, I can't wait for the next episode of Leave wow. It to Bricker. Wow, holy cow. So, Kevin, um, how can people listen to you on the Undisclosed Addendum? Oh, yeah. I'm on uh, Addendum, so if you will listen to uh, Undisclosed. Which you should Robbie this season because it's amazing. Yeah, season six is out, and uh, subscribe. You know, they every Monday they drop a new episode, but later in the week they have the Addendum, which is sort of their after show where they go back and talk about different things involved in the case. This season it's a uh, potential wrongful conviction case from New Hampshire. And so I am hosting the Addendum where I talk to Robbie Chaudhry and other guests about this case, it's the state versus Jason Carroll. We finally get to Jason Carroll mm. after hearing about all the suspicious as fuck things that the husband of the murder victim did. Somehow, tangentially, this kid who wasn't even involved wasn't even involved. Apparently, that the cops just assumed that he was involved and got him hunch. to confess. It was a hunch, and they wanted to recant, and they got him to got his mother to help him. Oh my god! It's just I don't want to give too much away. I'm just a listener this season because I'm not working on it. I am shocked. It's it's a it's an amazing case. I think it's one of the strongest that they've ever done. I think it's one as of the best. As far as the storytelling, yeah. the way they set it up, you're just screaming that now after everything that you know about the other suspects that they come to this guy, son of a bitch, bananas. 
Uh, lastly, want to let you know that we would love for you to sign up for the free Crime Writers On newsletter. Just go to CrimeWritersOn.com. You can put your email address in. All we're ever going to send you is the newsletter. We're not going to have aluminum siding salesmen. Car warranties. Yeah, car warranties hit you up. Uh, one of the reasons you might want to do that we're is we We're going to try to sell you leggings, though. <laughs> oh, well, you, just, well, you just stepped on my joke, Rebecca. Sorry. So you'll get behind-the-scenes stuff. You'll get Tweet of the Week. you get to see the cat of the week, but you'll also get Crime Writers On new merch that you can purchase, and apparently the leggings are a thing. Yes. So we've got a new leggings design coming out. We do? Yeah, it's the Crime Writers On emblem in black. Yes! That's what I wanted! Same leggings, but in black. Yeah, so... 100% gonna buy those, right? Classy. Laura, they're gonna be neutrals. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm down with that. I, and I'm getting the um, the other ones with my face all over them, and I'm the hoping Lara for some... The Lara Row, yes. The Lala Rose, and I'm hoping for some with Toby soon, like some... I was gonna say something horrible. Some some leggings with some big balls. Or yes, something. the balls, balls. Yes, looking for Toby. Toby's so embarrassed. Like, he's not embarrassed. He knows what his last name is. He's wiping a tear away from his eye. You it's can't believe like he it. hasn't heard this his whole life. Come on, he went to middle uh, school. Man. All right. So, Kevin, uh, before we go back to the show, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Ramona Mello. And Susan Porter, bless you. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon, Ramona and Susan. And if you would like to support us along with Ramona and Susan and all the people who are in our Patreon family, head on over to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And do your own remix of our theme song. Oh, I would love more remixes of our theme song. Some EDM. And thus ends the The business business section. section. Moving on. Then the next thing I know is I wake up in an old dingy camper. I don't know where I am. And I'm trying to find my clothes. After being drugged and raped, Carrie Lowe sought help from police in Halifax, Nova Scotia. But officers failed to retrieve evidence, examine the crime scene, or follow many of the procedures in place for their joint sexual assault unit. She got the runaround when asking about which detectives were investigating and the status of her file. Carrie told me that when she was asking why no one was going to the location, she was told, quote, we can't go beating down doors. And another time, she says police told her they believed her, so they didn't need to go to the scene. Carrie began to believe police had not just bungled her rape investigation. She suspected they were willfully ignoring it. She filed a high-profile lawsuit against the Department for Misconduct, but came up against a legal machine designed to insulate police, obscure examinations, and protect officers at the expense of the victims. And throughout every step, she's been required to identify the officers that have failed her. And yet, because so much of this happens behind closed doors and there it isn't a transparent, investigations aren't transparent processes, she didn't know where the failures were. She could tell there were failures happening. In the CBC podcast, Carrie Lowe Versus, reporter Maggie Rahr follows Carrie's ongoing search for justice against her assailants and against the department that refused to help her. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points for Carrie Lowe Versus. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. This is Kevin breaking in just for one minute here. We found out a couple of hours before this episode was supposed to be released, there were developments in this case. 
the man who was accused in the sexual assault was found dead in Nova Scotia, and police suspect foul play. Now, that won't factor into our discussion, but the episode five that we reviewed was a rough cut and obviously didn't include this information. Episode five is supposed to be out from the CBC later this week, and it may be different from the episode that we heard. It may be included. Just wanted to let you know that what was happening on the ground may affect some of this content. So anyway, let's go to our discussion. Now, I will say one thing about this podcast. Yeah. There's something that I love about it. And I want to talk to you, Kevin, as a fellow journalist, about this one thing. Okay. I think other lesser journalism outlets would say, why publish this now? Because this story is still in progress mm-hmm. or in progress, as they would say. In progress, Canada, yes. Right? So this is a woman who is currently in the middle of a fight. Right. I love it that they publish this while she is still in the middle of this fight. What do you think about that? Because can you not well, imagine yeah. an editor saying, "Yeah, you don't have a conclusion here. What, well, why are we publishing this? Well, we this? dinged the yellow car for this, yeah. right? That is like, well, why couldn't you wait another six months for this or something? Because it seems like they're trying to time it with something, yeah. right? Now, we've heard episode five, which doesn't come out until Wednesday, so we won't spoil too much about that. But it does indicate in there that there was the expectation that in November, in this month, there was going to be some milestone in the case. So I think it was timed for that. However, whether or not that works out, the whole theme of the podcast is that it is never ending. Yeah. That is designed that there will never be any resolution, right? right? So if you try to wait till it's all wrapped up and fully adjudicated- Never gonna happen. We'll all have gray hair. Well, I don't know. I You will just stop coloring your hair, I guess. But we'll, uh, we'll all be really old and- uh, We will have forgotten about it, which is really what the game plan is for the government. Right, right. Now, Toby, Carey is, in many ways, an extraordinary person to be at the center of the story because she is not only an incredible storyteller who remembers in vivid detail, even though she doesn't really remember what happened to her, but she also has incredibly detailed notes of every interaction she had after her rape. So it is really like from the minute this podcast begins, Maggie is the journalist, but Carrie is really our guide in many ways. I mean, that's how I felt listening to this. How did you feel uh, listening to this? Yeah, well, it's I I don't know if it was because Carrie was like worried that something like this was going to happen, but I guess she was in logistics at her job. So she was just used to keeping records on everything and just applied that to this. So because she's like keeping careful track of the phone call she had and who she had them with and what she learned from them and all this stuff, that when the Nova Scotia police and, and the state in general tries to sort of obfuscate or come up with like these alternative sort of explanations of, of what happened, like she's able to refute them based on contemporary notes and be like, no, that's not what happened. At one point, she's just like, like, I can't believe that they are sending me something that's this full of errors of just simple facts. Like that cop was not dispatched to the hospital. He was there. Yep. And that's why I ended up talking to him. I mean, I think that's what's crazy is that she has to be both that kind of person is, you know, clearly very strong and smart, but also keeping these records in order to have like something that is compelling or strong enough 
to force the state to respond to it. You know, if she hadn't been taking those notes, they would have just been like, yeah, well, whatever. You're just misremembering it. But instead, you know, as as you say, she's got the receipts. So, So, Laura, I'm going to ask you two questions here, okay? So first, for our listeners, I just want to say this podcast does describe an incredibly violent sexual assault. What happened to Carrie Lowe, Laura, is extraordinarily, I mean, every sexual assault is extraordinarily awful. But what she describes is harrowing, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like one of those things that, you know, I remember when I was in college and I had some friends that got in situations that afterwards played out in a way that wasn't what they expected. And everybody always worries about something like this. I mean, you see like that scene with Jodie Foster. And the the accused, yeah. Yeah, about that New Bedford rape case. And this rape was horrific, but she's able to describe it. And the way that she recounts the story is like very raw and very emotional and very compelling. But it is horrific. It's like flash to this scene, flash to that scene, flash to being in the car and trying to get out and not being able to get out to waking up in this dingy camper with one sock, no underwear, no idea where she is. And being in that very frozen state of sort of dissociation where she's like, I've got to take my daughter to her game. Yeah. And I've got to get home. But horrific, horrific, horrific. And I think that based on that, and then when you hear how she is just jerked around, what the fuck, Nova Scotia? I was going to take the ferry to Nova Scotia. No more. <laughs> well, this is no the, Nova Scotia. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. She has this multiple assailant rape. Yeah. She's kidnapped. She wakes up at the crime scene. She goes Mm -hmm. to the hospital. She's examined by a nurse, trauma-informed examination. The cop happens to be there. He comes in the examination room. Uh, The cop Mm -hmm. does not do a good job. So the nurse is basically like, stop it, right? The cop hands her a plastic bag and says, when you go home, put all your clothes in a bag and I will come pick them up at some point. Carrie says the officer gives her a plastic bag and instructs her to put her clothes in it and seal it as soon as she gets home. She says he tells her that someone will be by to collect the evidence that night. But nobody shows up that night or the next day. Anybody who's watched one episode of SVU knows that is fucked up and that's not what happens. And he also, by the way, she takes a cab home, doesn't have a ride. Number two... She knows where the crime scene is. She tells them where the trailer is because she had to go from there Mm -hmm. to wherever the fuck she was supposed to go next, right? They never go there. They never go to the crime scene because, quote, we believed you that that's where it happened. Laura Bricker, when you heard that, what did you do? Because I know what I did. Well, what did you do? I said, what the ever fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. I was like walking. I was like, it was enraging because you don't even have to know a lot about the criminal justice system to know that that is wrong. And the fact that she is keeping notes of what happened, the fact that she is the one having to go after the police and they say, well, we can't just go like beating doors down. You know, I think that was the answer at one point. But she confirms on Google Maps where she was. She gets the information. It's just unfathomable that the police would not go back and actually go out there. But again, I'm like, what the fuck, Nova Scotia? Because if she is pursuing this in this horrific rape case, how many other women are in other sexual assault cases 
not being taken seriously. Because this is a case, if I heard the details of this case and I'm a police person, I'm going to be like, no, this is this is really bad. We need to like get right on this right away because, as you know, like memory fades, uh, evidence go like you need to get on this shit. Like what the hell? Sorry, I just it's it's enraging. You realize this must be a systemic issue because it's not just her. That it can't just be her that's been treated like this. If this is how badly they're treating somebody in a case that is this severe. Yeah, and Lauren, it seems like this would be an easily solvable case where the crime happened was a residence. It wasn't like it was a park bench or someplace like that. Somebody yeah. lives there, right? Or someone uses it as a crash pad. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean or somebody, well. Somebody I mean, owns it. it. It it seems like it's traceable. She had an outcry mm-hmm. to the neighbor. You know, it seems like, and plus there was video from the bar. But what happens is, you know, when they make an arrest, all of the physical evidence uh, ends up being suspect because it wasn't properly collected. It wasn't properly cataloged. You know, and in the end, I hate to say it, but when they go to court, if you can't use that stuff, it becomes a he said, she said. And that's not Carrie's fault. That's the police's fault. You know what I kept thinking about, Toby, and I hate it. This is like what I kept thinking about. So there was an initial issue, right, where it's very clear because Jarrell Smith, who we'll talk about, the cop who was initially assigned to her file, says he was told immediately that the unit, like, they don't believe her. So she was a drunk woman. We don't believe her. Don't investigate it, right? So first of all, it's unbelievable to me that they don't believe her, right? There's video of her in the bar. There's video of the men approaching her, of her walking up to the men, of something happening where it looks like somebody drugged her drink, of her going outside. Her purse is still at the bar. She goes outside. She leaves with a man. She never comes back. There is video of it, yet he is told that we don't believe her, which is fucking crazy so assuming that they don't believe her because for some reason they didn't right i just kept thinking are they not investigating this because she keeps calling right Mm, yeah like i just kept thinking that is this one of those things where it's like she keeps calling so it's annoying so we're even less inclined to do this. Do you think that that's, I'm not saying that that's excusable, but I just kept thinking like, is because she's doing the right thing and advocating for herself, do they just find that annoying? And that's why they're not responding? I just find it confounding. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Maybe that's part of it, but they also like from the very beginning, you know, they don't show up. Like even after they stupidly send her home to take off her clothes and put them all together in a plastic bag, We'll send somebody over to get them. And they don't send somebody over to get them. And it's like, well, it's a long weekend. You know, somebody will come and get them after the weekend. We're all, we're all taking the... So... Uh, I have a theory about that. I think the cop at the hospital was not trauma-informed. I think he was probably an incompetent younger cop. And I think Carrie's right to not blame him. I don't think he was trained. I think he said she was a drunk woman and not believable. And I think that's where the seed was planted where then nobody believed her. Yeah, you know, like they say, like, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? So if you are the hammer that is the sex crime investigator, everything can't be a flower. Yeah. There's got to be some nails for you, right? You should be looking at that saying, oh, yeah, this is the thing that we're here for. I don't know. You know, but right, different people get involved and, uh, you know, here, put your own clothes in a bag. I mean, you never watched SVU for like one. Don't they have that in Nova Scotia? Well, Toby doesn't watch SVU, but you know that this yeah. case, they're like, they don't do anything basic, right? Like even the basic stuff that you would do as an untrained non-cop, like it sticks out. They don't do yeah. any of the stuff. And I, and I think Maggie's smart where 
they get the retired Halifax cop to come in and talk about what mm-hmm. is procedure. And he's just shaking his head. It's like he didn't secure the building. Like you, you knew where it happened and you didn't send somebody over there to stand guard over it and then go get a warrant to go and search. The plastic bag thing is completely ridiculous. You wouldn't do that. I mean, he just goes through the whole thing. It's just like, this is where this is messed up. This is where this is messed up. But even so, they should not be all bundled in one bag. And certainly not depending on the victim to do that herself. Because you're getting into all kinds of uh, continuity issues. I mean, part of it is they didn't immediately get somebody from the uh, sexual assault investigative team, which, you know, is a combined Halifax police and Royal Canadian Mountain Police unit. But yeah, you know, from the very beginning, they're not taking it seriously for whatever reason. Would it have been different if they'd sent a state officer to look into it who knew more about that kind of crime? Um, You mean that night? Yeah, exactly. Even at the hospital? Yeah, yeah. I think it would have. Yeah, the hospital. I mean, what's supposed to happen is that he was supposed to call, I, I can't remember exactly what the term is, but the person who was in charge that night at back at headquarters, and then they would make a decision about whether they should bring in the person who was on call from the state unit, and that didn't happen. Yeah, either he didn't so, call or that person didn't dispatch. Right, and and they won't tell they won't tell Carrie who that person who made the decision was, like who right. was on duty that night. This is like another thing she can't find out. Yeah, I mean, I think it was all about that night. I mean, they were treating her like they didn't believe her that night. Yeah. Hey, little lady, just go home and like, let's pretend you're a rape victim. Put your clothes in this plastic bag because, you know, from seeing on TV that we have you put your clothes in a bag like they didn't. They never treated her like she was a rape victim from the beginning. You know yeah. what I mean? They yeah. never secured the scene. They didn't pick up her clothes. They never treated her like they were investigating because they weren't investigating it. Yeah. No, the, the things that you guys just said started to really make me think about if that cop, and I forget the constable's name, if he hadn't been at the hospital and they had said, we will call an officer to come in versus there just happens to be this one here because the one that was here didn't know what to fucking do. So, of course, you're yeah. like, oh, this is the guy I'm going to go with. If they just said- Or we he will- wanted to go home. or what? Yeah, whatever. They would have called and the right person would have come down. The fact that the nurse argued with the cop tells you something was really wrong about what was going on there. Yeah. But I got to tell you, the reviewer in me was very concerned the first two episodes. Right. The reviewer. Because there's a lot of Carrie explaining what happened, what her frustrations are, and the things she doesn't know, combined with Maggie telling us that nobody is commenting. And I'm thinking, the thing that we want to know is what happened here. So if this is going to be five episodes of we don't know, yeah. like, eh, this is going to... This may not be a really great podcast, but after that, we start to get the insight yep. about what's happening. So it's like, oh, good, because if the question is, why are they not investigating? It can't be known without some insight. And so that really opens up in episode three. Yeah. So, Laura, we should disclose to our audience. We have heard all five episodes of this podcast. As of the dropping of our review of this podcast, episode five has not yet been released. Now, we know that some of our listeners, by the time they've heard our review, episode five will have been released. Plus, the topic of this podcast is actually news that can be read. So there's a line here where we, I don't want to spoil what's in episode five. You want to talk a little bit about the events of episode five without, okay. I do. So can we just like not, without being too specific about episode five plays out, like just generally Mm -hmm. talk about 
the main event here. Um, so there is a really, really fascinating person in the podcast, Officer Smith, Jarrell Smith, who is the original cop that was assigned to Carrie's case, who she initially is like hates and he's part of her lawsuit. He's named in her lawsuit because he eventually is pulled off of her case and she is perceived as being one of the people who didn't investigate properly for good reason, because her case never went anywhere. He ends up approaching her as a whistleblower and saying, I was told that they didn't believe you and I was told to not investigate your case. We hear him in the podcast. Now, all the episodes are out where we hear this. We hear him showing her on video (laughs) where he thinks she was drugged. We hear him going to the bar, walking us through Everything that he thinks happens, he believes her. It is so, stop here, so powerful to hear the cop who is investigating her case, who she thinks bungled it, completely on her side, willing to testify in court for her, willing to go up against his whole police department for her, and willing to say, I believe you, and I think multiple people raped you. I think that you went to that trailer. Everything everything you said was true. I think we know who did it. And I think that there's a case here. So just stop there. What did you think when you heard all of that? Holy shit. Yeah. Because, you know, you're thinking the cops are totally incompetent. And when he says that, you realize there's like something bigger at play here. And, you know, like you're thinking, oh, my gosh, it's it's like this. I don't want to use the word cover up, but it's it's like something from the top down or somebody higher up is at work here in terms of not letting this case go forward when you when you find out that this guy not only believes her but like legitimately has a theory of what happened and that he was told not to pursue this and it's just mind-boggling and you kind of wonder what's going on here like why is this police department and this justice system so skewed that there's an inclination to like step back and not investigate this case when they have information that it sounds like they could pretty clearly go ahead with this case? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it just it's mind boggling. It seems like they're covering up mistakes. I mean, that's what it seems yeah. like at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all right. So here's the part we have to beat. Well, I, I want to be vagueish, but we it's in the news, right? There's a turn. Like, he changes sides. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? What is going on? You guys have questions, right? We all have questions? Yeah. Yeah. Toby, like, what the hell? He's not on her side anymore. What the hell? Like, what questions? Yeah. I mean, it's it it comes out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense. And there's no answers to it, right? Yeah. Which, you know, again, you were talking about, does it make sense to make this when there's so many unanswered questions? But I, I, I think this is one of the reasons why you do. Yeah. Is that uh, this is a big, like somebody made some kind of convincing argument to this guy that he had to back off of what you hear him clearly say are his beliefs about the case. And, you know, it's hard to imagine somebody argued the facts of the case and were like, you were just wrong about these facts. Like, I don't think it was that, you know, there's just so many troubling questions about this whole thing. And again, I think it points out to how important it is that Carrie was so meticulous in keeping track of what was happening to her. Because mm. yep. that, that ends up being sort of the spine of what is holding the state to the extent that the state is being held to account. Yep. And it's because of that. And, you know, I think what's interesting is you have these three people. 
who all have kind of different roles in making this case. You got Carrie, who's the victim, who is clearly the one who's you know strong enough to to make the stand and, and, and to push this case. You've got the woman who's the advocate who's working with her and helping her and helping to navigate the legal waters. And you have Maggie who uh, is reporting on the case. And you do hear there's clips from early on in the case. I think it's CBC is saying, now we throw it to Maggie Rar with the case. So you know that Maggie's been on it from very, very early on. So when it ends, you know, you just have so many questions and there's clearly something's going on. Well, you and I, Rebecca, each had a theory. Yeah. We started talking about it at dinner. We said- About Smith. Yeah, about Smith. And we said, okay, shut up. We're going to save it for the podcast. Yep. Uh, you want me to go first? And then you, you can goes, go first okay. with your theory about why he became a turncoat. Yeah. Well, look, I think that he was uh, somewhat separated from the, the police department. He was on leave. On leave. He's certainly somebody who I'm assuming would like to go back to work there. So assuming that's the case, how about the theory that if the assailant- is found not guilty, right? Because he's now suddenly working with the defendant's team, right? If the defendant is found not guilty, then it makes the police look like, yeah, see, she wasn't raped. It wasn't that big a deal that we didn't do X, Y, or Z for the investigation. If the defendant is found guilty, he's a rapist. We didn't do enough to capture a rapist, right? So it's part of the PR game. Like, if you do this and help get him acquitted... Uh, then we don't look so bad. That's my theory. But you have also a really interesting theory, too. Yes, I have a theory. Oh, goody. So we heard in the podcast that the defendant has made this charter claim or whatever it's called. It's almost like a like Miranda. It's almost like- It's a rights claim, yeah. Yeah, he's basically like habeas corpus, like a civil rights claim. But he's basically said his rights have been violated as a defendant, right? But they don't know why, what the basis of his claim is. I think the basis of his claim might be that this cop is- cooperating with the the victim. Oh. So yep. I think that might be the basis of his claim. So I think that the defendant's lawyer and his legal team might have said, Smith, you've put yourself in some personal legal jeopardy here by violating our client's civil rights. And unless you join our team, you are going to be part of this litigation where we are going to sue the state and the, you know, the region for... Civil, our civil rights claim that the, our, our rights were violated because you are giving evidence against our client and unfairly, you know, putting him in this position. So I think they put the squeeze on him to join their side by putting him in the position where he's part of their charter claim. That's what I think is going on. Right, because in the U.S. he might not have had the kind of immunity or at least the legal protection if he were still an active duty officer, right. as opposed to if he was correct, yeah, uh, so, so that's what theory. I think is yeah, going. That's good theory, but we don't know. Well, think think about what he yelled at her in the hallway. I can't talk to you. I can't talk to you anymore. Yeah. He seemed afraid. Like he wasn't just mad yeah. at her. He was afraid. Like he's basically like rejecting talking to her. He, he's and he said to Maggie, "I'm not gonna. I can't talk to her anymore. I'm not gonna talk to him anymore. And you can't publish." I went out to uh, the main hallway and I saw him walking across and I said, "Jarrell, can I talk to you for a minute?" And he just started screaming at me, "Stay away from me. Get away from me. I don't want to talk to you." Security had to rush in and sort of like 
closing on me to make sure he wasn't coming at me kind of thing. Which says even more how fucked up things are in Nova Scotia right now. Just saying. Publication ban. That's Nova the thing. Scotia. Can we just leave the publication ban as the thing that we'll leave for the listeners to hear in the last episode? Because that's, that's rage a whole walking. other fucking thing. I don't want to spoil that because that is a twist that I That's would like the second to worst thing Nova Scotia's done besides serving mashed potatoes with ice cream scoops. Okay, so I will say my I love Nova Scotia. I visited Nova Scotia once about 8 years ago. And my one memory of Nova Scotia aside from all the um museums and monuments being about horrible tragedies around death and genocide, which by the way, Nova Scotia's wonderful and there was a lot of death and genocide there and I'm not saying it wasn't. Was that in every restaurant the mashed potatoes were served with an ice cream scoop? It was lovely. Makes a nice uniform brown shape, Rebecca. (laughs) Yes. I'll ask my neighbor, Ben, my favorite local Nova Scotia person about this. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) Ben, what's going on with potatoes? Yes. But the publication ban, bananas. Bananas. Yeah. We'll leave that for our listeners to discover. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, do we give a thumbs up or thumbs down review to Carrie Lowe Versus? It's a new podcast from the CBC Laura Bricker, what do you think about this five-part podcast from the CBC, Carrie Lowe Versus? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I think this is really good. The story was told in a way that was very straightforward, very engaging, but it is also a really important slash really freaking rage-inducing story to listen to. And it not only tells the story of this survivor of this horrific sexual assault, but it also exposes a lot of flaws in the justice system while doing that. And it's just told in a very competent, journalistic, straightforward way where we can follow the story, we get all the information, and it's also told with compassion. So I would say um, thumbs up. Toby Ball. Uh, I'm a big thumbs up. Uh, I really like this. You know, we talked earlier about how there's no sort of clean resolution But I think that's part of the point is that there should be and there's not. And there's probably not going to be anytime soon. Um, I I think there's a lot of really smart choices. Uh, Again, bringing in the retired cop to kind of talk about how things should have gone. There's a couple of stories. uh, You know, the the arc of Jarrell Smith is just fascinating. So anyway, it's a big thumbs up. And I, I think it's also it's like the right length, too. Every part is important and there's not a whole lot of fat. So big thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. Carrie tells her story very well. Not every victim can do that. And she is a great advocate for herself. That comes through. It's very frustrating because what you see, the people who are sworn to protect her are really giving her the classic stiff arm. We're going to delay. It's a war of attrition. We just hope we can outlast you and you have, you know, no more strength to point out our deficiencies here. I would have liked to have thought better of our very polite and earnest northern neighbors. But uh, this is a very important case. And, uh, you know, we should should be following it because it's going to be going on, apparently, into the distant future. Thumbs up. Yeah, I will say this podcast came out in uh, late October, November 2021, just in time to very likely land on my top 10 podcasts of 2021 list. Mm. This is a huge thumbs up for me. I freaking love this podcast, Carrie Low Versus. I love it for so many reasons. The storytelling is amazing. Carrie Lowe herself is an incredible figure telling an incredibly compelling story that, you know, it's important and it's unfortunately not atypical of a story of a sexual assault survivor. But 
the fact that she is who she is and she is meticulous as she is and she is as much of an advocate for herself as she is, she's atypical in that way, but that shouldn't matter. But that's what makes her extraordinary and that's what makes her expose all of these problems. And I think what's amazing about this story is I do think, I strongly believe that the decision of one inexperienced, untrained cop on one night set off a cascading set of events that has now dragged this thing out for years and years. And it is extraordinary what is going on in this case, enraging. Uh, But the thing that I love most about this podcast is the fact that the editor at the CBC who said yes to this being published is a brave fucking editor. I can think of a million editors, including editors I know, who would say no to this being published because the story is unfinished, because they would say, is there a there there? You know, we don't have a resolution. There's no decision in this case. Uh, There was a potential ban on publication that's just been lifted. Uh, You know, we don't have a trial. We don't have a decision. Listen, it is brave for this story to come out now because this story could only make an impact by coming out now. That is what journalism is supposed to do. So for that reason, I love this podcast. One other thing that I love. Is that a thumbs up? It's Kevin, there's a thing I, there's a thing I hate talking about. What's that? Anyone's voices. Mm-hmm. But I will say. Maggie Rar's voice. I would trade places with Maggie Rar for Maggie Rar's voice any day of the week. Uh, Maggie Rar, you've got a great voice. Don't so, go changing, Rebecca. Huge, huge thumbs up for me for Carrie Love versus. I think this podcast is extraordinary. It is very likely to land on my best podcast of 2021 list. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. A little something I like to call the, the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. We all know that the cost of medical care in the U.S. is out of control, with hospitals billing things like $15 for a Tylenol pill, $7 for a Band-Aid, or $8 for a box of tissues and calling it, quote, a mucus recovery system. That's true. One woman posted her medical bill online showing that she was charged $223 to have a mole removed and another $11 because she cried when it happened. The line item was labeled, quote, brief emotion. Apparently, it's all legit. Under the Affordable Care Act, the provider can charge for mental and emotional evaluations under billing code 96127, although it was more intended to screen patients for conditions like clinical depression. Consultants are urging hospitals to use the billing code more often as an easy way to increase revenue. In this case, it seems the doctor determined she had done about $11 worth of crying for which they ought to be compensated. Yeah, not $7 worth, yes. or as much as $30. 11 sounds about the right number. It seems like a number that you would just pick because it would be like like not yeah. audible. Maybe it's like prorated, like she cried for five minutes. So Panel. Was, yeah. Panel, if hospitals are going to charge extra for these behaviors, patients ought to get rebates for doctors' behaviors. What kind of discount should you get on your next medical bill? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, well, number one, the clear liquids do not have the right seasoning in them when you're on the clear <laughs> liquid diet when you're at the hospital. Kevin, yes. you've been there. You I was know. just last week. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's no good. And and number two, I'm sorry, but the flat pillows when you're in the hospital bed, they really should be giving a um, some sort of refund for yeah, that. Yeah, 30 bucks, right? 
Tell me about what do you think? I'm not a big fan of those socks with the little treads on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How much do you think you get back for those? How much should I be reimbursed for having to wear those? Yeah, I don't know. Because you probably got charged $70 for that pair. (laughs) That's right. And it's it's probably on a per foot basis. So I don't know. What, like $7.50 a foot? So like 15 bucks? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Kevin? I think you get $5 off for cold hands. Oh, Oh. I was going to say cold speculum, $957. (gasps) Yeah, get it back. Yes. Um, I would say $1,000 for that, Rebecca. $1,057. But then they got to take off the $11 for you crying. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Minus $11. So $1,046. Is that fair? I don't know math. All right. We should probably end on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a pet that Kevin is very excited about this week. <gasps> we do? Kevin uh, really? suggested a pet? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, a few weeks ago, I have to say, this is so fun. Um, some of our podcast listeners came to Exeter for a girls weekend mm-hmm. and Brielle Chapman, um, who came with her two friends, nominated her hedgehog, Scout. What? And the reason <gasps> that... I- Here's the photo. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Oh my God. It's like a little ball of cuteness. Oh my God. Oh it's my super, God! Scout is super cute, but the reason is she told me the funniest story about Scout, and I had to have her like give me the full story. So basically, he's kind of a lunatic. So he runs so hard on his little wheel that he like knocks it over, and he's like a little cartoon character. So it's you mean really, like really Sonic? Loud. You mean like Sonic the Hedgehog? Like Sonic the Hedgehog? So Brielle's father was visiting, and he is a plumber, and he was like putting his ears around because he thought they had problems with the pipes in their house. Wow! Because the hedgehog was making such a racket on his little wheel he thought something was broken um so the hedgehog wins this week but i also this week i want to send out like a huge crime writers on hog to our friend angela buster yeah who has lost two dogs she's lost gladys named for gladys in my book and she lost her beloved amos and angela is such a wonderful dog mom so i wanted to send her a huge hug and she's also a Kappa Delta, I just learned. So we are now bonded many ways. Many Angela's ways, wonderful. Angela and I. She sent donuts to my workplace. She's a wonderful person. And she's also a foster dog person too, right? Yeah. So Gladys um, was actually a foster. And she took this little dog Gladys in and named her for Aunt Gladys in my book. And it was, it was, I followed, uh, and, and basically Aunt Gladys was not going to have a very long life. So Angela said, you know, I'm going to keep her. I can't like, you know, and gave her the most wonderful, wonderful, like yeah. last two months of her life. Like glorious palliative care. Took her to carnivals, yes. fed her ice cream, cotton candy. Oh, yeah, no, literally did. They took her out for the puppuccinos all the time. I was like, oh, my gosh, can I go live with Angela, please? Angela's an angel. All right. (laughs) All right, Laura Bricker, if people want to nominate their cats, dogs, hedgehogs, any kind of animal to be Cat of the Week, of course, they can email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com or go to our Facebook group. But if they want to tweet to you, how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to tweet to you and see your amazing brown corduroy jacket that makes you look just like Jordan Catalano from My So-Called Life, <laughs> how can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Toby Ball on H. I no guarantees about any brown corduroy oh, jacket. Toby. I guess maybe, Come on maybe now. I got to take Toby's a more of a Brian than of a Jordan, Jordan Catalano. No, no, he's a Jordan Catalano. Right. Who's Kevin. Brian? 
He's the other guy. Uh, <laughs> You're just going to have to watch some pop culture, Toby. You are. Kevin Flynn, if people want to meet my own Jordan Catalano, how can they find you on Twitter? You can find me at twitter.com slash Kevin P. Flynn. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our Facebook page, Crime Writers On, and click Join the Group. We'll let you in unless you're a jerk. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, plus Married with Podcast, plus Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, plus Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons and performed this week by Jeff Brumley. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we keep all of our cool purple sunglasses. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Oh my God, there's something in my drink. What the hell? Oh my God, I think it's a, a bug. It's okay, you won't drink much. (laughs) I was like, like, what is that? It's a trick. I think it was an ant. Ah. Because I swallowed something before that I thought was like a piece of paper, and I was like, that's weird. Why is there a piece of paper in here? Protein. Was it one of the Laban Bonds? (laughs) (laughs) It might have been. They might have jumped right in and tried to take my drink. Yeah.